Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Akash Tries Finance, a weekly podcast series where I take books on business, finance, especially personal finance, and try to break them down chapter by chapter through each episode. In the previous seasons, I guess you can call it that, uh, of, of this podcast, we have gone through a book called The Richest Man of Babylon and Think and Grow Rich. In this series, we're going through the very popular and the very well-written Psychology of Money by Morgan Hauser. In the previous episodes, we've covered chapter one to four, and in this, we are covering chapter five, which is titled Getting Wealthy versus Staying Wealthy. Good investing is not necessary about necessarily about making good decisions. It's about consistently not screwing up. Hauser starts this chapter by saying there are a million ways to get wealthy, and there are many books that will do so, but there are very few books that help you stay wealthy. And he suggests a combination of frugality and paranoia will actually get you there. And that topic is something we don't discuss enough. And in this chapter, he discusses that topic through several stories. One of the stories is the story of Jesse Livermore, a stock market trader who rose to prominence uh, during two bubbles. One is during the 1920s or the late 1920s, and the other is the aftermath of that. By age 30, he was worth an inflation adjusted 100 million US dollars. And in the Great Depression, when everything went bankrupt, when every company went bankrupt, when traders lost a lot, he earned a lot of money. On October 29th, when uh, the market dropped by almost half, he earned the equivalent of $3 billion because he shorted the market, which is betting against the market, betting that everything would fall and fall it did. He defied all odds and in one day, Jesse Livermore made the equivalent of more than $3 billion. And that is in terms of Indian rupees, that's about 21,000 crore rupees in one day. During one of the worst months in the history of the stock market, he became one of the richest men in the world. As Livermore's family celebrated their unfathomable success, another man wandered the streets of New York in desperation. Abraham Jomansky was a multi-millionaire real estate developer who made a fortune during the roaring 1920s. As the economy boomed, he did what virtually every other successful New Yorker did, bet heavily on the surging stock market. But he was caught on the, in the opposite direction. The October 1929 crash made Jesse Livermore one of the richest men in the world. It ruined Abraham Jamansky, perhaps taking his life. After the 1929 blowout, Livermore, overflowing with confidence, made much larger bets. He wound up far over his head in increasing amounts of debt and eventually lost everything in the stock market. Broken ashamed, he disappeared for two days. And his, when his wife set out to find him, he eventually, she found out that he eventually took his life. The timing was different, Housel says, with Jamansky and Livermore shared a character trait. They were both very good at getting wealthy and equally bad at staying wealthy. Even if wealthy is not the word you'd like to apply for yourself, the lessons from the observation apply to everyone at all income levels. He says if he had to summarize money in a single word, it would be survival. 40% of companies successful enough to become publicly traded lost effectively all of their value over time. The Forbes 400 rich list, uh, a list of the richest Americans on average, 
there is a 20% turnover, meaning that about 80 people every year in this list do not repeat themselves in the following year. As he says, these are the people who know how to get wealthy, don't know how to stay wealthy. He says capitalism is hard, but part of the reason this happens is because getting money and keeping money require two very different skills. It's important to understand that these two are skills. It's, it's skillful, consistently gaining money through whatever expertise you have, whatever business you have, whatever service you provide, whatever employer you work for. But it's equally skill, skillful, he says, to consistently keep, maintain that wealth and more importantly, grow it through compounding, whether it's investment or creating more money. And one of the stories he says, or a, a small little tale from Michael Mortiz, the billionaire head of Sequoia Capital, a venture capital firm that has funded some of the most brilliant companies throughout the world, including in India. During an interview with Charlie Lo Rose, he says, I think we've always been afraid of going out of business. That is our secret to success. We assume that tomorrow won't be like yesterday. We can't afford to rest on our laurels. We can't be complacent. We can't assume that yesterday's success translates into tomorrow's good fortune. One, there are two reasons, he says, Hazel says, why a survival mentality, as, as uh, noted by Michael Mortiz, as was absent in the tale of Jesse Livermore and Abraham Jamansky, is a survival mentality is key with money. One of the reasons that is, is few gains are so great that they're worth wiping yourself out over. And this is an important point made by several people in business. For instance, the co-founder of AngelList suggests, Namal Ravi Khan suggests that avoid a wipeout at all times. You need to be able to restart. You shouldn't sink yourself so deep into any single investment business that there is no way to come out. And this is the be all and end all. And I've put all my chips on the table. And if this doesn't work out, there's no way out from it. Avoid a wipeout. The other is the count is the counter to counterintuitive. I always get that word incorrect. Counterintuitive math of compounding. Compounding only works if you have something to compound. It only works if you give an asset a certain number of years to grow. It's like planting oak trees, he says. A year of growth will never show much progress. 10 years can make a meaningful difference. We can spend years trying to figure out how some, someone like Warren Buffett achieved his investment returns, how he found the best companies, the cheapest stocks. But the simple principles he followed are often so unglamorous and requires a, a long time to sort of you know, see the results that we don't notice it. For instance, he didn't get carried away with debt. He didn't ruin his business reputation and continued to build network, networks and relationships with people. He didn't panic and sell during 14 recessions he lived through. He didn't rely on others' money. He didn't burn himself out, quit or retire. He survived. And that is the main point. Survival gave him longevity. And to illustrate this point, he gives another story of the third member of the infamous Berkshire Hathaway duo or trade. Now, we often think of them as just two people, Warren Buffett and um, Charlie Munger. But in this case, there was a third member called Rick Curin. Warren, Charlie and Rick made investments together and interviewed business managers together. Then Rick kind of disappeared, at least relative to Buffett and Munger's success. When asked about this, Buffett said, 
Charlie and I always knew that we would become incredibly wealthy. We were not in a hurry to get wealthy. We knew it would happen. Rick was just as smart as us, but he was in a hurry. What happened was that in 1973-74, Rick was levered with margin loans, meaning he used those loans to make investments and those investments didn't turn out that great and he had to repay the money. And since it was margin, um, he had a margin call, meaning he had to immediately pay the, that money and he didn't have enough. And the market went down almost 70% in those two years. So he got margin calls. He sold his Berkshire stock to Warren. Warren actually said, I bought Rick's Berkshire stock at under $40 a piece. Rick was forced to sell because he was there. But now just let's think about that. In 1973-74, the Berkshire Hathaway stock was worth $40, which is roughly 300, uh, so, sorry, it, it's, it's, it's roughly 3,000 odd rupees. Right now, that stock, one stock, one single share is worth about 4,350,000 4, US dollars, which is 435680.13 as of October 23rd, which if you, if you sort of turn it into rupees, it's about 3.2 crores. That is a growth rate, a simple percentage growth rate of 10,89,100 or a compounded annual growth rate of 27.7%. That means just by holding on to the company Berkshire Hathaway stock, and, and mind you, the stock has never split, meaning if I have one share, I have never had to divide it into two because the company wants more people to buy it. They have never done it. And they're probably one of the few companies that have never done it or the few successful ones that have never done it. He sold it for $40 because he was in this case, he didn't want to wait for the wealth to compound. He wanted immediate gains. And that $40 is worth $435,000. Charlie, Warren and Rick Housel writes were equally skilled at getting wealthy, but Warren and Charlie had the added skill of staying wealthy, which over time is the skill that matters the most. And that, that is the most important takeaway from this. And there are three principles that Morgan Housel wants us to take in uh, before we wrap up this chapter. And those are number one, more than I want to make big returns, I want to be financially unbreakable. And if I'm unbreakable, I actually think I'll get the biggest returns. This is similar to if I were to draw a sports analogy, especially like a combat sports analogy. People say that you often want to be able to survive longer than your opponent. And you often want to take the shots for a very long time. If you can take anything, there's nothing that the opposition can do to hurt you. And if you can just continuously land a few blows, no matter what sport you're in, you will win. And in this case, he, he uses the analogy for cash versus a bull market. The market is going up. You don't want to hold cash. If the market's going down, you want to only hold cash, right? You want to own assets and own assets that go up a lot during a bull market. You look and feel conservative holding cash during a bull market because you become acutely aware of how much return you're giving up by not owning the good stuff. I mean, that's happening with anything. The Indian stock market's going up really, uh, uh, really well. The crypto market is going up really well. And at this point, nobody wants to hold on to rupees. They want to hold on to a stock that's going up, a cryptocurrency that's going up. But 
he says if that cash prevents you from ha- from having to sell your stocks during a bear market the actual return you earn on that cash is not 1% a year it could be many multiples of that because preventing one desperate ill time stock sale can do more for for your lifetime returns than picking dozens of big time winners compounding doesn't rely on earning big returns merely good returns sustained uninterrupted point number 2 planning is important but the most important part of every plan is to plan on the plan not going according to plan meaning you need to have a plan b or at least a get out plan if plan a doesn't work plan b doesn't work how do i get out of both plans so that i am in some in some sort of way fine or i can survive he says what's the saying you plan god laughs financial investment planning are critical but a plan is only useful if it can survive a reality and a future filled with unknowns is everyone's reality it's a question at least that i ask you do plans work some of them do not 100% but if you plan on something to go wrong it will probably go wrong and you need to figure out if that happens even if the worst happens can i survive in your investment in your life wherever it is a good plan doesn't pretend this won't true it embraces it and emphasizes room for error and this is one of the most important principles of this chapter and this book what is room for error it's called a margin of safety household rights it's one of the most underappreciated forces in finance it comes in many forms a frugal budget flexible thinking and a loose timeline anything that lets you live happily with a range of outcomes frugal budget means even if i don't you know pinch my wallet to the last rupee or the last last paisa i can still survive this month flexible thinking is okay even if i don't end up saving every single day if i save maybe 3 days a week in terms of the meals i have the form of commute i use that's fine right? and a loose timeline would be something like even if by 30 i don't have this much in net worth that's fine i still have a few years to sort of get that there because if you start living um with absolutes whether it's a budget a thought or a timeline you want to maximize returns and you often take very risky bets in order to do that you borrow money you use levered trading you go deep into gambling and and that's not going to end up um that's not going to end up really well and and it's going to cost you not just not just your investment but also your your clarity he says margin of safety is raising the odds of success at a given level of risk by increasing your chances of survival so it it's it's okay it's okay if you're raising the odds of success meaning that it's okay if you fail if you increase your chances of survival just think of this as a seesaw right if you pull down one end the uh, the other end will go up meaning if you pull down the odds of your success by not getting into a risky investment you're pushing higher the chances of survival point number 3 is a bar belt personality optimistic about the future but paranoid about what will prevent you from getting to the future a bar belt personality like a barbell investing philosophy is is just think of a barbell right it has uh, a fat end on either ends and in the middle is pretty small or smaller than the ends that is the investing philosophy that he suggests that is the investing philosophy or the investing personality that 
he also suggests you should have. He says you can be optimistic about the long-term growth trajectory, but equally sure that the road between now and then is filled with landmines that always will be. A barbell starts thick, it narrows in the middle, and then ends thick. Right? There's positive, negative, positive. Even if you have bumps in the road, you still will end up being successful at the end. Destruction in the face of progress, in this case, is not only possible, but an efficient way to get rid of excess, right? excess wealth, excess greed, excess whatever. Imagine if you were a parent and could see inside your child's brain. Every morning, you'd notice fewer synaptic connections. You would panic and say, this can't be right. There's loss and destruction there. We need an intervention. But you don't. You are witnessing the normal path of progress. And that is the same with investment. Every day, if you stare at your portfolio um, and you see little greens, little reds, you will panic and you will sell the reds, buy more of the greens. You will ruin compounding and you might even sell it at, at, at an incorrect time. Economic markets and careers often follow a similar path. Now, he gives the example of the US economy, but I'm sure if you go through the economy of your country, it will be bumps considering that the growth trajectory of your economy for the past 30 to 40 years has been fairly stable. In the American economy, at least between 1850 and 2010, 1.3 Americans died while fighting nine major wars. Four presidents were assassinated. 6.7 lakhs Americans died in a single year from a flu. The stock market fell more than 10% from a recent high at least 102 times. Stocks lost a third of their value at least 12 times. Annual inflation exceeded 7% in, in 20 separate years and a lot more. But standard of living increased 20-fold in 170 years. But barely a day went by that lacked tangible reasons of pessimism. But the important thing is pessimism and optimism are both required. Pessimism is required in the short term to keep you alive. But in the long run, you need to have a simple optimistic outlook. You don't need to act on either. You don't need to act on, okay, I'm going to be well set for the future for the next 20 to 30 years if I continue investing. Therefore, I can spend frugally right now. No. You can't say that, oh, I really need the money right now. I'm going to stop my investments in the short term. Both sorts of uh, um, acting on both sorts of these attitudes is incorrect. Short-term paranoia is required and long-term optimism is also required. Jesse Demermore figured this out the hard way. After losing nearly everything, he reflected. I sometimes think that no price is too high for a speculator to pay to learn, at which will keep him from getting the swelled head. A great many smashes by brilliant men can be traced directly to the swelled head. An expensive disease. He said, everywhere to everybody. And remember, three things that you can take away from this chapter are good times are not the end of bad times, and neither are bad times the end of the start of good times. Always have a room for error. Always have a margin of safety. Think of this as a seesaw. If you decrease the chances of success, you are increasing the chances of survival. And lastly, short-term paranoia and long-term optimism. Remember these things. And that's it from this episode. If there's any way I can improve this podcast um, through better narration or deep dives into the chapter 
or covering other books please do let me know that's it from this episode i hope you'll join me next